0: Good morning, everyone, and thank you to Alex and Heidi uh, for reading God's Word to us this morning. Uh, that is where we will be today in the book of Philippians. Uh, it is good to be in the building, although I'm sorry not to be sharing it with many of you and look forward to, as uh pastor said, when cases are coming back down again. Um, I'm grateful to be at a church where, even though our building has closed at times over the past 12 months, our church has never closed. Um, And I'm grateful to be part of a community that that has taken that seriously. Uh, My name is Jonathan Demers. I'm one of the elders here at MAC, along with Pastor Leon, Brian Hogel, Mike Fang, uh, and Nate Egger. We are privileged to serve this body and uh, just had a really sweet time this weekend on our Spring Elder Retreat. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you uh, for looking out for us and, and lifting us up. We definitely felt your comfort and your thoughts uh, as we navigated a number of challenging but important topics. Uh, I am fortunate to be married to my wife, Laura, and the father of two little boys, uh, Martin and William. We've been in Detroit for about 10 years uh, and have just loved our time in this community. Uh, and as an elder, I, I love the opportunities to come and, and speak with you all and, and to learn with you. I, I find that teaching these messages, uh, I, I learn probably more uh, than what I hope to impart because I'm able to just spend so much time in these passages. Uh, And today's passage is a particularly sweet one uh, and an important topic. It's the topic of unity. Um, It's a a major focus of Paul's writing, but particularly in this passage, and clearly a passage that I think we need to spend some time in, and a topic that we need to meditate on as the church uh, in this time and in this country. Um, this is kind of a two-part series in that I'll be preaching on the front end of the Holy Week with Palm Sunday next week and Easter thereafter, and then preaching again the week after Easter on the subject of Christ's humility uh, and the Christ hymn, which is Philippians 2, chapter, or chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And I'm excited because I think unity and humility are such great bookends to the Easter season. Uh, Christ came and died for our unity as a church, And the reason why he did that was because of his humility. And so we, in this Easter season, are being given a really uh, timely opportunity to step into that and to um, inhabit the behaviors of our Savior. Um, So before we jump into the meat of the sermon, just a couple of reminders for you all. Um, You are welcome to ask questions at any point during the sermon. Uh, That's including those of you that are here uh, in person, but also those of you that are in the chat. I've got my phone up. Uh, And I will take a look at the uh, chat occasionally throughout the uh, sermon. So feel free to drop a question in there. You can also ask me afterwards, too. I I love to just process these sermons with you all and uh, find that I learn a lot uh, in doing that. And then also, just briefly, uh, I I make a full copy of my notes available to Ginny afterwards that go up on the website. And so for those of you that like to take notes, please feel free to go ahead and do so. Um, But if you would just like to be freed up to just listen and ponder what we're talking about, you're able to do that because everything that I'm talking about will be up on the website, uh, including the slides. So with that, um, let's pray and begin to ponder this passage. Father, um, what we are promised in Scripture and what we see you praying for hours before, your own crucifixion um, is something that feels beyond our grasp. This idea of of unity, unity with you and unity with one another. When I look around, I see um, success after success by our enemy, the devil, roaming around like a prowling lion, seeking who he can devour the accuser of the brethren, as scripture says, finding all sorts of creative and destructive ways to tear us apart piece by piece. And yet, Father, I know that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And I know that we can enjoy that unity in our individual relationships, certainly, Lord, but as a church, we can experience the kind of supernatural unity that is painted all throughout Scripture, from the Old Testament to the New. Would you use this sermon to rekindle in our hearts and our minds a desire for that unity? Would you help us to understand it properly, Lord, to recognize that, yes, there's a need for empathy, but also a need for prophetic truth-telling, and that those things can be held together. We love you, Lord, and and welcome you into this time, and pray that you would speak uh, through me, and through your word, and through your people. Amen. So one year ago, almost to the day, I can remember pretty much exactly where I was. Uh, this was about a week into all of us being quarantined and in the middle of uh, social distancing, a phrase we didn't really understand at the time and now understand more than we'd probably like to know. And uh, I was spending my mornings walking the Burns-Jefferson uh, Loop, a three-mile walk from my house, trying to kind of manage my own um, Rehab because I was in the middle of physical therapy coming off of a knee surgery and couldn't continue that because of covid um, and it gave me a lot of time to think in the mornings because thanks to my gimp it took me an hour to walk three miles um, but I found my idle thoughts like probably many of us at the time turning to the pandemic there was so much to process, so much to think about so much to learn and understand um, and I think for most of us it was pretty overwhelming, and it was for me too at times but Honestly, I think, you know, you might be surprised to hear, and I'm kind of surprised to think about it, that really I was energized by the whole thing. Um, At Mac, we had really, I think, begun to aggressively reimagine the way our ministry needed to act as a result of the virus. Um, We'd begun thinking about how to reorganize Mac development into something that would be more effective and useful for our neighbors during COVID, and I was just really proud of how, as a church, we were seeing this as an opportunity to rise to the occasion. Um, and it seemed to me, possibly, that the church as a whole, the American church uh, in particular, might also be willing to really rise to the occasion uh, presented to us by this tragedy. And in retrospect, I think that seems pretty silly, but uh, it's, been a, it's been a long year. Um, but I had in my mind the, the reputation and the testimony of the first century Roman church, Uh, What a powerful, genuinely Christ-like representation of God's presence here on earth. This was a church whose members, while facing violent persecution, refused to raise their hand in violence against their enemies and their captors. This was the same church that was rushing into abandoned Roman cities um, and imaging in their lives the good news of Jesus to the sick and dying by offering their bodies as living sacrifices in a way that caught the attention of the very Roman emperors that were persecuting them. And the thing is, there's nothing fundamentally different about those Roman Christians, those women, children, men, and you and I today. Nothing. The same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead lives in our moral bodies, and it lived in theirs. And and yet, here we are today, as disunified as ever, I think we can all agree that unlike that early expression of the church, um, today's American church didn't exactly cover itself in glory these past 12 months. There's been um, a steady exodus of black Americans from predominantly white evangelical spaces. A a hashtag this month called Leave Loud has been trending for much of the month, and it's an opportunity for black Christians to tell their stories about why they're leaving these spaces. Um, American Christians, Christians continue to be some of the most likely subgroups to embrace conspiracy theories and question the usefulness of COVID vaccines. High-profile Christian leaders have fallen to massive moral scandals, one at a time. And most recently, of course, a 21-year-old white man who was raised and baptized in the Southern Baptist Church killed eight people, including six Asian women. And as Johnny pointed out, um, he didn't have to say his motivations were racist for us to know that they were. But what really troubled me was part of his stated rationale, which was to eliminate temptation. (laughs) So for some, even talking about this, Even calling attention to our dirty laundry as the church in this way can seem problematic. What of the church's unity, we say? Didn't Jesus pray for us to be unified? How, How does calling attention to this stuff help? But then others reply, so does Christian unity mean that we just have to put up and shut up? Is there no place in the doctrine of Christian unity for a public and prophetic word of lament? I would say there is. Consider the words of Pastor John Anwucheka, an African-American pastor formerly of the Southern Baptist Convention who recently facilitated his church's split from the denomination. He says this, unity is a worthy and God-honoring goal, yes, but unity in and of itself is not a vice or a virtue. Unity is a vehicle, the most important thing about a vehicle is who or what's driving. Bad guys are unified, but their unity doesn't do much good. To solely emphasize unity without addressing the sources of disunity, such as racial injustice inequality, inequality, is to confuse the goal with the pathway. If unity is the goal, then fighting for racial equality is a pathway to achieving it. The civil rights movement was a unified and diverse effort, not because they took up a fight against disunity in the abstract. Rather, they were fighting inequality of a societal and structural nature. A diverse group of people found solidarity around advocating for the equality of the disenfranchised. Where you have a diverse group of people sharing solidarity around a worthy concern, you'll end up getting both unity and equality. But where you merely aim for being undivided, you get neither. Family, the unity of the church of Christians is supposed to be the way that the world's attention is redirected to Jesus. It's supposed to be the closest thing to the majestic Trinitarian presence of God on this earth, tabernacling, as the Bible says, in his creation. That isn't our collective testimony today, as, as we can plainly see, but it can be. And we can start practicing it here in this church today. If we want to get back to displaying that kind of powerful representation of God on earth, we've got to get back to the basics. We've got to confront the insidious lies that are ripping apart our unity as a church, as a larger church. We have to remember what we've forgotten. Fortunately, Paul's here to help us do that. He wrote this letter to the Philippians, to a church that was plagued by suffering, that was wrapped up in its own cultural idols, And had forgotten the holy power that had fueled their transformation as a community. Paul spends almost all of chapter 1 setting the stage for a series of encouragements and instructions on unity. A unity that's founded in humility. And so today's sermon is going to be, uh, again, kind of this two-part series on um, unity today and humility in a few weeks. And that's because uh, our unity is in Christ And that was made possible by the humility of Christ. And Easter brings attention to both. So with that, let's turn to Philippians chapter 1, where we will begin by focusing on two encouragements from Paul. So at the end of chapter 1, Paul ends his chapter with two encouragements and then begins chapter 2 with three instructions. And that's why I'm kind of taking a step back into Pastor Leon's uh, sermons, which I'm grateful for how he introduced us to this book each of the two encouragements and the three instructions are designed to draw the church back towards unity in Christ. And so we'll begin by reflecting first on those two encouragements in Philippians 1, because they lay the groundwork for the instructions that come after. And so first, Paul encourages the Philippians to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. This is in verse 27 of chapter 1. Paul stresses the singular focus on faithful gospel-guided living throughout his epistles, and he references the gospel in this letter to the Philippians at least eight different times. It doesn't take a scholar to recognize that Paul's driving passion in ministry is this evangelion, the Greek term for good news or the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul defines the gospel outright, not in terms of propositions though, but as the story of Jesus' birth, life, Death, resurrection, and reign. But what I want to focus on today more is the verb phrase that's translated here as live or to conduct yourselves in your Bibles. Honestly, this is a pretty flimsy and shallow interpretation of the Greek verb that Paul actually uses, the word uh, politomai. Paul only uses this term once in all of his letters, which means that right now he's using it in a very deliberate way. And when translated literally, polytomai means to live as a citizen. Paul is calling on this kind of political language, and he does it again in the next chapter, where he states that he and the Philippian Christians are to be as citizens of heaven. So why is Paul using this kind of political citizenship language? For one, it was really common for the Philippians and for many in Roman society to be told to walk worthily of the empire, and in that sense, Paul is using that familiar political concept to help the Philippians recognize that their allegiance, their identity, their citizenship rests not in the Roman Empire but in the kingdom of God. Beyond that, though, Paul is also communicating the communal nature of their living. This isn't primarily an individualistic teaching. By using this concept of citizen and politai, the Greek term. Paul is helping the Philippians stay away from a hyper-individualism and keeping them from becoming caught up in their own honor and status. And, And this is a theme we're going to come back to again and again in this passage. By Paul using this term, he's going far beyond just the regular everyday decisions of a private individual in their own life. He's getting after the notion of structuring one's entire life around the shared principles and values that form a community's identity. Specifically in this case, the kingdom of God as that community. He isn't talking about just living, but abiding in an allegiance to Jesus. And so putting that first encouragement together, Paul is saying, display your citizenship, Philippians, your allegiance to God's kingdom, by reorienting your whole life, your shared life as a community, around the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That leads to the second encouragement, where Paul encourages the Philippians to stand firm in one spirit, and to strive side by side in the face of suffering, conflict, and adversity. This is the focus of verses 27 to 30 of chapter 1. This encouragement links back to the first one. It's the why behind Paul's exhortation to live as kingdom citizens. It's so that they could not only just withstand hardship, but recognize and even embrace their trials and struggles together. Paul is invoking this image of a Roman phalanx, This group of soldiers, shoulder to shoulder, uh, shields up, um, spears out, this kind of epitome of unity in the face of adversity. That's what he's calling the Philippians to do in the midst of their own trials. And Paul is also reinforcing a major conviction that you will see all throughout his epistles, and one that we need to hear today in this country. Encountering opposition as a Christian is the rule, not the exception to the Christian experience. Throughout his epistles, Paul characterizes hardship as inevitable, sometimes even necessary. In Romans, Paul goes so far as to say that the pathway to glory travels through trial and suffering. And so in verses 27 to 30, Paul is is bringing that teaching to bear and he's talking about hostile opponents whose animosity stems from the Philippian Christians' newfound faith. And, And let's take a minute to think about what that hostility looked like. Most biblical historians believe that the persecution early Christians faced at this point, before things got really violent, was still intense. We're talking about slander, discrimination, social isolation, accusations of superstition and impiety, theft of property, verbal and physical abuse, imprisonment, and again, all because their faith was considered an affront to the Roman Empire. Here's an example, kind of a historically informed hypothetical, from biblical historian Peter Oakes. Again, this isn't a real example, but a kind of a hypothetical to help us understand. Jason is a Greek of Macedonian descent, married to another Greek woman, Chloe. They have four young kids, and both are Christians. Jason's family lived, uh, farmed near Philippi, but Jason's profession is in goldsmithing with his cousin at the nearby temple. If Jason felt some guilt for working at the temple, that quickly vanished when his cousin fired him for professing Jesus' name in public. And then for the last 18 months, Chloe and Jason have now faced a desperate financial struggle just to keep their family alive through very poorly paid work, thankfully, usually from other Christians. However, six months ago, Jason was caught up in a fight with some old friends, lost his job, and since a struggle to get any work, even from other Christians because they're worried about the effect of his reputation on their own. And to their great regret, Jason and Chloe could not even manage to send money to Paul, something that the Philippian church cherished as a practice. This, this is the kind of daily struggle that Paul is writing into, the kind of thing he's asking him to stand shoulder to shoulder, side by side and face. And yet, note Paul's frame of reference. He states that his solidarity and his suffering and the Philippian suffering together has allowed him to embrace his trials and tribulations And now he is desiring that the Philippians do the same thing for themselves. He says, God has graciously granted you the privilege of not only believing in Christ, but of suffering for him as well. Paul restates this again later in the epistle. He says, my aim is to know Jesus and to experience the power of his resurrection by sharing in his sufferings. What is this? What do we make of this? I would say that what Paul is getting at here is what other writers and scholars have described as the concept of cruciformity or cross-shaped living. All that it means is living in a way that retells the death and resurrection of Jesus by voluntarily renouncing our rights and our own selfish gains and desires to serve and embrace the needs of others. It looks like walking the extra mile, turning the other cheek, loving our enemies, and blessing those who persecute us. It means... Dying to ourselves, identifying with and carrying our crosses in all manners of life and conduct. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul writes in his letter to the Galatians, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Though that may appear weak in the eyes of the world, we know from scripture that cruciformity is a participation in the real power, the power that Paul describes later in chapter 3, verse 10 as a power that liberates us from the powers that rule this world and deceive us into habits of violence and coercion and control. By living in a cruciform way, we're guided away from these cosmic deceptions and into Christ's benevolent kingdom, tuning our hearts and souls back to the song of God. And, and this idea will really be more of the focus of our next sermon after Easter. But taken together, I would say that Paul's second encouragement to the Philippians is this. By standing together, you will be able to face and even embrace your child, your trials as a privileged cross-carrying opportunity to participate in Christ's story. Again, by standing together, you will be able to face and even embrace your trials as a privileged cross-carrying opportunity to participate in the story of Christ. These are the two encouragements that we get from Paul, and they set the stage for the three instructions that follow in Philippians chapter 2. Having that set that table, Paul says to the Philippians that they must remember the divine grace that transformed them, and then he urges them to inhabit that themselves. So here Paul is trying to chart a course towards supernatural unity by reminding the Philippians of the very community habits that are shaped by God himself and transform them into Christians in the first place. Habits, it appears, that the Philippians have either forgotten or completely abandoned. Notice the terms that he uses here. Encouragement, sympathy, fellowship in the spirit, compassion, love. All of these terms aren't meant to be differentiated. Paul is stringing these concepts together to demonstrate the multidimensional features of God's graciousness as expressed through the church. He's blowing back the fog and reminding the Philippians to live cooperatively, to stifle any sense of rivalry or individual superiority, to celebrate humility and service in each other, and reject any self-promotion or boasting. And in that sense, Paul is actually using the gracious work of God as an example to them, pricking their conscience with memories of how they were changed, how they were supernaturally evolved by the Spirit. If you were once so inspired, Paul says, and transformed by the gracious love of God revealed by his people, ought you not imitate and then reflect that same love back? And so I ask you, to think back to your own spiritual journey and consider what was it that drew you to Jesus in the first place? What was the good news to you? Or maybe better yet, who? I expect that for many of us, it took the form of a person, a parent, a partner, a mentor, a teacher, a coworker, maybe a child. Someone manifested to you and made real to you in a way that you had never understood before the love of God that's described in Scripture. So now for you, just as Paul is exhorting the Philippians, consider Paul's instructions in the same way. Are you eager to exhibit the gracious love of God that someone showed to you and that you're now ready to send back out to others? Or have you forgotten the very habits shaped by God's character that brought you into the kingdom? Have you kept that to yourself? May we never forget that God's good gifts are restless in the hands of the receiver until they're given away again and again. Second, Paul instructs the Philippians now to recalibrate their mind's eyes together. Here's what I mean. In verse 2 of chapter 2, Paul is drawing on the exhortations of the first chapter towards a specific kind of unity, a unity of the mind. And notice how deeply Paul cherishes the thought of of the Philippians embracing this unity. He's not so much worried about the removal of his chains for bringing him joy. He wants the Philippians to be unified through and through. That's what he says in verse 2. That's what will bring him joy. So the Greek verb that Paul is using here, for "neo," translated as being of the same mind or being like-minded, refers to the way that we see reality and then respond according to that vision of the world. And Paul is using that verb really deliberately. His instruction is implying that the Philippians lack that shared view of things. They have different lenses, different ways of viewing what's going on around them. And Paul is concerned about that. He's concerned that the Philippians' outlook on life, that their worldview uh, is interfering with their ability to properly understand, digest, and even in some ways embrace their shared suffering. There's something in the way something clogging up their view. And that's what he begins to confront now in the third instruction, which we see in verses three and four of chapter two. Here, Paul commands the Philippians to relinquish Roman honor-seeking and embrace Christ-like cruciformity. So now having reminded the Philippians of the need to be unified in the face of adversity, having reminded them of the forgotten values that welcomed them into the kingdom— And having exposed the fact that they lack a shared gospel-guided lens for seeing the world, Paul launches now into the application of his teaching, confronting Roman honor culture with God's cruciformity. Consider the verses here, verses 3 and 4. Instead of being motivated, Paul says, by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should, in humility, be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself, looking not merely to your own interests, but treating the interests and needs of others with even greater importance. These verses are so blunt and searing in their conviction and practicality. It reminds me of Romans 12, which Paul also writes. Live in harmony with one another, Paul says. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not be conceited, and if possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all. Note that Paul here isn't criticizing ambition per se, he's criticizing selfish ambition or the Greek term kenodoxia. This is a Greek term that was used in the historical era in a very particular way to refer to the Greco Roman cultural obsession with getting as much recognition and honor as possible. That's what Paul's going after. His world centered around this pursuit of honor, where people would use their family and friends and clients and neighbors to try to climb the ladder as much as possible to get these honorous merit badges, so to speak, that would allow them more opportunities. Sound familiar? I think that has some applicability to us today. One Roman historian, Philo, actually described this Greek term, kenodoxia, as a kind of bloodthirsty animal that consumes its prey through gradual deception. It's true, words have not been spoken. Paul contrasts this beast, this kenodoxia, obsession with honor, with another Greek term translated most often as humility. And while Romans respected moderation and even a kind of gentleness, they didn't think much of humility because for Rome, humility was closely associated with losing, with shabbiness, uh, with low status. But that's not what Paul's getting at here. He's talking about a humble attitude of thinking of others' interests as superior and even in higher status than your own. He's using a status-based way of thinking about humility to confront the way that the Romans have begun to believe, or that the Philippians have begun to believe lies about pursuing and trying to get as much honor and status as possible. We see Paul do this again and again. When he speaks of Jesus' status and honors later in this chapter, he emphasizes how Jesus emptied himself of those things and that he didn't consider his divinity something that he could just take advantage of. And then in the next chapter, Paul uses his own life to further reinforce this confrontation with Roman honor culture. Paul rattles off all of his honors and accomplishments and then quickly discards them, all these hard-earned titles and accolades and honors, all in exchange for sharing in Jesus' sufferings. Now, I do want to add this important caveat because I think this is critical. Paul is not teaching a kind of doormat humility that has been used and abused throughout church history. It would be really easy to read this and conclude that Paul's vision for humility prohibits advocating for yourself in any kind of way or even asking for help. But that is not humility. After all, even the famous command to love your neighbor as yourself involves loving yourself, not loving your neighbor instead of yourself. No, for Paul, Christlike humility meant considering social status as irrelevant when looking at yourself and assessing other people. And if we all lived that way, the whole Roman honor system would be completely subverted. And so would the American honor system. The church then and now is supposed to be an enclave for that kind of subversion, a place of relief from the constant honor chasing and ladder climbing that consumed the Romans and their colonies and consumes us to this day. And we have the task, the obligation, the obligation, of examining the ways as a church and as people we pursue and we perpetuate this pursuit of honor. So having studied these two encouragements to live as worthy kingdom citizens and to embrace adversity together, as well as Paul's three instructions, inhabit the grace that transformed you, recalibrate your mind's eyes together, see things together well, and three, giving up the honor-seeking for Christ's humility, I think we just kind of need to sit back and ask, I mean, this isn't a particularly complicated teaching. Why does Paul go to such great lengths to say something that seems pretty straightforward? If you want to be unified, be humble. Could have saved a lot of ink. Because the deceptive quality of sin is insidious. It's not easily seen. Deceptions aren't obvious. If they were, they wouldn't be deceptive. I'm convinced that I and you are, routinely go about underestimating the trappings of sin and the ways it has reached into and tainted our minds and motivations. To get after something as simple as be humble, Paul knew, because he knew himself and his sin, that he had to deploy careful insight, very deliberate choices in language, and powerful and relevant illustrations that drew on his sufferings and the successes and sufferings of the Philippians. Paul wrote and taught in these dynamic ways to peel back the layers of deception that clouded the judgment of the Philippians. He knew that getting after and confronting something as pervasive and and all encompassing as the Roman honor culture would take an enormous effort. It would be like convincing fish that water is wet. (laughs) That's not an easy task, especially because fish can't talk. But you know, you get the metaphor. In that vein, so we must ask ourselves constantly, daily, what are the insidious lies taking root in my life and in our shared life as a community? If we want to be people who are serious about putting sin to death and and who want to take ideas like total depravity consistently and seriously, then we have to be willing to do this kind of spiritual heavy lifting. We have to take the time to sit and ponder and meditate and reflect. Yes, this is going to require discernment. It's going to require steadiness. It's going to require perseverance. And yes, it's going to require constantly soaking and washing ourselves in the word of God. I encourage all of us, step back, ask ourselves, what are the insidious sins and deceptions in my life that I'm not seeing? Who can help me see what I'm missing? And what are the dynamics at play that require more from me more from all of us than just the mental table scraps I have left over at the end of the day to think about. We have got to get after these deep-rooted, hard-to-see deceptions that shape our minds and imaginations away from God's value and towards the deceptions of the powers. We have to, or we're going to become another group of people consumed with power and control. It's the only way that we'll ever be able to achieve the kind of unity that Paul speaks of here. And from here now, I want to transition a little bit from the Philippians 2 passage to a little bit more of a reflection on unity in the New Testament as a whole. Paul's exhortations and instructions here are intended to lead his readers to think about this concept, this beautiful idea of unity. And that's not surprising because in all of Paul's letters, unity is the first and foremost common theme. You might be surprised to hear that. Maybe salvation or evangelism are. But in fact, Pauline scholar N.T. Wright has said that for every verse in which Paul speaks about salvation, there are between six and eight passages about unity. If Paul could come back today, he says, and see the contemporary church, I think the thing that would astonish him and maybe even horrify him is not that we would be lacking in unity, Wright says, but the fact that we mostly don't even care about our lack of unity. Every single letter that Paul writes is about unity. Unity is a theme that Paul doesn't just write about, though. It spans the Bible from the Old Testament to the New. The historical texts in the Old Testament talk about how God grants his people unity of mind, needed to heed his word. And how good and pleasant it is, the psalmist declares, when God's people live together in unity. So what I want to do now, having established that unity is so critical, having established that it's the focus of Paul's teaching in Philippians 1 and 2, is that I want us to meditate on some images in the New Testament that illustrate Christian unity. And my prayer is that in doing so, these images would rekindle within us a deeper understanding and a renewed desire for the supernatural unity that builds on the foundation laid by Paul in Philippians. And to start that, I want to turn to John 17, where we see this first image of unity and love. The verses we're going to be looking at are the famous words of Jesus' final prayer before the beginning of his crucifixion story. And I'll read the full passage here, starting in verse 20. I am not praying only on their behalf, but also on behalf of those who believe in me through their testimony, that they will all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. I pray that they will be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. The glory you gave to me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one, Father. I in them, you in me, that they may be completely one so that the world will know that you sent me and you have loved them just as you have loved me. Here we see Jesus pour his heart out to the Father, praying for himself, his disciples, and then all future followers, meaning you and me. Just hours before his death, Jesus' heart and soul are consumed with visions of you and I worshiping together, even this morning, imaging to the world a glimpse of the Trinitarian life of God that's marked by radical, self-giving, totally unified love for one another. When we experience Christian unity, we get swept up into that love and life of God. This is what Jesus means in John 15, earlier in the same gospel, when he talks about abiding in him. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing And that includes unity. We also see in this passage that when we participate in the divine unity, we bear fruit in mission. Jesus prays, as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The disciples' unity with one another and with God and our unity is intended to make the world know that the Father sent Jesus. That's the whole point. And this isn't just kind of an intellectual knowing, like memorizing science terms for an exam. This is relational knowing. The unity of God's people is supposed to sweep others into the same life and love of God that we enjoy, transferring, as Paul says in Colossians, others from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. That saving love flowing from our shared unity with God and one another is what is supposed to testify to the world that Jesus is Lord and draw even more into Jesus' kingdom so that the world may know. That is what Jesus says here. And so let's ask ourselves, what is this love that they're being drawn into? What does it look like? Well, Jesus answers that for us in the same gospel. He says that it's the cruciform love of the triune God seen most clearly in his death to come on the cross. When I'm lifted up, Jesus says in in the John's gospel, I will draw all people to myself. This love, though, is also revealed in the foot-washing scene of John 13. After kneeling and washing his disciples' dirty blood-stained feet, Jesus teaches them that they too must wash one another's feet. Jesus uses foot washing to illustrate that Christian love is in action. It's not just a concept. The posture of the foot washer should be the default way that all of us live if we claim to follow Jesus. This posture of kneeling, bending, serving, descending so that we can elevate others. And this John 13 visual is almost certainly connected back to the Christ hymn in Philippians 2 that we'll study more in a couple weeks. So what do we take from this first image of unity? I would say this. Unity requires love, and love requires humility. Jesus considers unity of paramount importance to the point that he's praying about it and approaching his own crucifixion. And a few chapters before, with the foot washing, and a few chapters after with the crucifixion, we see a love that stems from that supernatural unity. They'll know we are Christians by our love, the song says, by our love. Not by our doctrine, not by our programs, not by our accomplishments. I'm not necessarily against those things, but this passage is teaching that by our unity, through love, that is how Jesus is made known. So that's the first image we see. There's another image in 1 Corinthians 12. This one's focused more on unity and diversity. I have the passage up on the screen in part, but I want to focus on one particular verse where Paul says, that for just as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so too is Christ. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians here carry strong themes of unity because the Corinthian church is plagued by disunity. Paul says in chapter one, verse 10, I urge you brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, agree together end your divisions and be united by the same mind and purpose. Paul here is dealing with a community that's in turmoil, plagued by factions. We see a similar situation today. Pastors believing, believe that preaching and evangelizing are the most important thing a Christian needs to do. Teachers and seminary professors think education and study is the most important. Social activists argue that the priority of the Christian is making the world more good and just. And still others insist that internal spiritual renewal and meditation is the key. But for Paul, he's reminding the Corinthian church and reminding us today, at the beginning of chapter 11 here, and chapter 12, that the church comprises a variety of all these gifts to serve and build up the church's common good, for preaching, for teaching, for renewal, and for the enacting of justice. Paul says, For just as the body is one and yet has many members, so too is Christ. Paul's remedy for the Corinthians' divisions is making it clear to us and to them that Christian community does not have to be fragmented into factions. It can be and must be one and distinct. Paul wants the Corinthians to understand that unity does not mean uniformity. In fact, for Paul, uniformity is in many ways the antithesis of Christian unity. We're not all supposed to look the same. We're not all the same body part. We complement one another. We bring our differences together. And those differences bring honor and attention to God. This is the same God who placed each of the members in the body together, differences in all. And it's not unlike how he drew together uneducated fishermen, political activists, and Roman collaborators together as his first disciples. We must reject the lie, and this image teaches us this, that unity is not uniformity. The third image here is found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. And again, I want to focus on one of the specific verses in this overall passage. Paul says, "...for he, Jesus, is our peace." the one who made both groups into one and who destroyed the middle wall of partition, the hostility. Wow. We humans like to build walls. Walls have become kind of a controversy in the past few years. But perhaps back then, the most potent symbolic wall known to early Christians was the wall that separated the Gentiles from the inner precincts of the Jewish temple. If a Greek, belief, or a Greek uh, practicer walked beyond the court of the Gentiles, he could face the penalty of death. And then beyond that actual physical wall, various first century Jewish texts describe the law as a kind of wall, safeguarding the Jewish people from the Gentiles, creating this division. But look what we see here in Ephesians. The dividing wall of partition and hostility has been torn down in Christ, bringing those who used to be far off, split into these factions back together as one. This is the message of reconciliation that we see in this passage, reconciling us both to God, certainly vertically, as well as to one another horizontally. The church believes that by Jesus' cross, Jesus reconciled all things and all people to himself. And so for Paul, the church of Jesus is for all people, Jews and Gentiles now, together as equals at the fellowship table. But this conviction doesn't stop there at Jews and Gentiles. We have, to, we have to know this. We have to embrace this. The mission of reconciliation goes beyond the particular division to all kinds of different binaries. Gentile and Jew, male and female, slave and free, black and white, American and Mexican, documented and undocumented. The list goes on. Not to get political, but to get political. God in Christ creates unity without denying difference. In that sense, the Christian mission is a mission of wall deconstruction, tearing down walls of hostility and division wherever they're found. This mission is beyond our wildest dreams, Gr- greater than anything we could even ask or imagine, Paul says in Ephesians 3, the very next chapter. And in Ephesians here, we see that mission leading to a supernatural kind of unity and shared purpose. And that brings us to the final image of unity, a beautiful image found in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 12. Consider this with me as I read the verses. After these things, I looked, and here was an enormous crowd that no one could count, made up of persons from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, dressed in long white robes and with palm branches in their hands, and they were shouting out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood there in a circle around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they threw themselves down with their faces to the ground before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, praise and glory, wisdom and thanksgiving, honor, power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Family, this for me is one of the most powerful images of Christian unity in the entire New Testament. Paul speaks of a similar reality in Romans 15, a a vision of different people united in the very thing we were created to do in the first place, worshiping God. And in this vision, what we see are all the manifestations of unity that we've seen in the prior images, powerful expressions of love for God and one another, diverse voices and people complementing each other in unified worship, yet distinct in their individual voices, and reconciliation between God and God and his creation. This is what Paul means by offering our bodies as living sacrifices in Romans 12. God is glorified in majesty by the self-emptying, diverse, and reconciled unity imaged by his people here. And what is, to me, so tremendous about this glorious picture of redemption is the worshipers, right? At this long-awaited resurrection, the moment when all wrong will be righted, when all evil will be silenced, when death will be defeated and the hopes and dreams of so many will finally be vindicated, resurrected bodies of all cultures and colors will stand together as God's ultimate affirmation. Esau Macaulay says it this way, when God calls the dead back to life, he calls each of them back with their ethnic identity intact. Praise God. For now, when we love across difference, when we worship together as a diverse body and we're gathered in our shared bond in Christ, we give the world a small glimpse into that future hope. We're testifying to that future reality in the present, and it's a powerful display of unity, both to each other and to the world. And so those are the four images, family. Love, We see in John 17, diversity in 1 Corinthians, reconciliation in Ephesians, and worship in Revelation. This is how the New Testament portrays God's people swept up into the life and love of God. They're the healthy markers that fuel and follow from a unified Christian community, the same sort of community that Paul longs to rebuild through his words of encouragement and instruction in Philippians 1 and 2. But in contrast to those images, we know that violence, uniformity, boasting, honor-seeking, these are the sites of smoke that should lead us to immediately grab the fire extinguisher and put out the flames of disunity before it spreads. If we don't, we're going to find ourselves prey to our own desires, impeding and disrupting the witness of the gospel and otherwise saying in our words and deeds that, as Paul says uh, in 1 Corinthians, the Messiah has been divided and broken up into little bits. Because of our failure to express unity. But how do we do this? How do we navigate this challenge, particularly in the shadow of the past 12 months? We know that the American church didn't exactly emerge looking like the majestic manifestation of love, diversity, reconciliation, and worship that Jesus prayed for all those years ago. But I know that we want that. I know we want to desire to be supernaturally unified fearless in the face of opposition, loving our enemies with the peacemaking power of Christ. I think, family, that we can begin to work towards that unity by embracing Paul's posture here, an empathetic and prophetic posture. He, like Christ, is full in his posture of grace and truth. And we need to be the same. Because on the one hand, Paul is offering us a deeply empathetic, patient and caring voice to the Philippians that pursues solidarity and brotherhood with them and reiterates his love and care for them over and over. I think today we have to agree that there is a temptation, almost a magnetic one, to adopt smash mouth tactics that are celebrated in culture today, giving back to them whatever was given to us. This is a false teaching. It's seeking to convince us that our battle is with one another, not the powers and principalities of this world, the things that are deceiving us into those ways and habits. In the midst of relational conflicts, particularly those in the church, we can so quickly forget this. And we can forget that the Bible presents other humans to us, other believers as our brothers and sisters, aunties and uncles, grandparents and cousins. They're gifts to us. The way forward through those conflicts and toward flourishing healthy community dynamics is setting our pride aside and our anger aside and rediscovering together how each of us are gifts to one another. In U2's song one, the lyrics talk about how we get to carry each other. It's a helpful reminder for me, at least, of how we need to teach ourselves to see bearing each other's burdens as a privilege. And I don't think there's a better illustration of this than in Mark chapter two. This is a passage in the Gospels where four friends carry their paralyzed friend to Jesus and ultimately cut a hole in the roof and let him down so that Jesus can heal him. To me, what's obvious is not that the paralyzed man is being carried by his friends, but how the nature of their delivery of him to Jesus is essential in his forgiving and healing. Once they've lowered him in, Jesus is said to have seen the friend's faith, he, he recognizes it. That's what catches his attention is the way that these friends bear the burden of their brother. And it's at that point that Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. As Christians, the bond we share is greater than any bond that exists in this world. We belong to each other. We're given to each other as gifts. It's easy to lose sight of this, whether in a single conversation or in an ongoingly challenging relationship. But in those moments and seasons, we've got to fight the temptation to see each other as obstacles to our flourishing. What we need, what you and I need, is the unity of mind that Paul spoke of, so that we can see each other once again, that we're one, not the same, but one, and that we get to carry each other. So that's one posture, this posture of empathy. But on the other hand, Paul is not just empathetic. He's a consistent, firm, truth-telling and prophetic voice, challenging the Philippians and many other Christian churches to return to the principles of the calling they first received. And I want to be clear about this. Unity doesn't mean that feathers never get ruffled and the truth doesn't get told. If you're not convinced, then go ahead and look back at Paul. Look at his letters. Look at his epistles. Look in Acts 2, where Paul publicly confronts Peter Over his unwillingness to share life with the Gentiles that God had welcomed into the kingdom. Paul says, When Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was wrong. Throughout his epistles, Paul offers harsh and blunt words of rebuke, and if Peter's not above it, then none of us are. German pastor, theologian, and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer maintained that in situations of injustice, Christians are commanded by Christ to love their neighbor by standing up against evil, casting down strongholds, and engaging the principalities and powers through prayer and prophetic engagement. Bonhoeffer was shaped in this idea by the Harlem church, a white guy from Germany being shaped by the black church and bringing that back to his country. Bonhoeffer walked that talk when he opposed Hitler's regime when he returned when he left the safety of the United States for Germany, when he organized an underground seminary and led a new generation of Christians to stand against Nazism. But what gets lost, I think, sometimes, is that his fiery nature wasn't just reserved for the Nazis wearing the uniforms. Bonhoeffer openly confronted Germany's confessing church, the institutional body that had been upholding Nazism. And he died for it. Bonhoeffer's life and legacy remind us that Christian compassion is rarely tidy or neat, and sometimes it is obligated to stand and speak prophetically, even against the church itself when it is subject to the wiles and schemes of the devil. So these are the tensions, right? Empathy and truth-telling, grace and truth. And to be honest, I think for many in our congregation, this second response comes a lot more instinctually. Particularly on matters of race and social justice. We don't really hesitate to publicly condemn racism, and for good reason. We should, especially after a week like this. And yet, for those of whom this is true, I want to encourage us to reflect and meditate on the first exhortation to humility and grace. We who fall into the category are often quick to speak, slow to listen, and absolutely certain in our convictions. We struggle to first consider the perspective of the other person. We don't see our brothers and sisters all the time as gifts. This behavior wounds those brothers and sisters in Christ who need to know that you love them and stand in solidarity with them, even and perhaps especially when they stumble and fall. Issa Macaulay, I mentioned him earlier, but he also has noted that the way in which the vision for Christian social justice is different than the world's can be boiled down to this. It doesn't leave anybody outside the sphere of redemption. And that is critical, family. Christian social justice is based on the belief that all of us are made in God's image, and therefore, nobody should be abhorred or dehumanized. Macaulay says, if you tell us that you're trying to change, we're going to come alongside you. That's because when the church is at its best is when it's opening up the possibility of change to begin again. This is at the heart of the Old and New Testament messages of salvation, liberation, and reconciliation. When we fail to cultivate this kind of empathetic thinking towards brothers and sisters in the church, we're admitting to ourselves that what Dr. King famously warned against, he who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. King also wrote, we can never say I will forgive you, but I won't have anything further to do with you. Forgiveness means reconciliation and coming together. And yes, that means owning the wrong that was done, that has to happen. But for those of us who are instinctually eager to be prophetic, may we meditate on the reflection and the need to be empathetic. Meanwhile, though, there are others of us in this congregation who need to ponder and respond to that second exhortation to prophetic truth-telling. For those of us, our non-confrontationalism and our preference for the way things are, the status quo and stability, It prevents us from building a unity that's based on the truth, not the mere absence of conflict, not a fake empty peace. Our tendency, for those of us who struggle in this way, to diminish the real and felt pains of our brothers and sisters in Christ tears at the fabric of our bond because we're unwilling to call out the harm that has occurred. A failure to speak truth in that way, a reluctance to air the dirty laundry, so to speak, hurts our brothers and sisters who need to hear from you, who know that you see their pain, who want that pain to be acknowledged and want the pain giver to be confronted. This is humility and empathy, yes, but also prophetic truth-telling, grace and truth. And family, I want to offer those to you as we consider how to pursue unity together. Next week is Palm Sunday, the the day that we celebrate Jesus' victorious entry into the city of Jerusalem, a subversive victory. It's victory, sure, but it's not by might or power. It's the ultimate act of self-giving and self-emptying love, an act which set in motion a church meant to manifest the supernatural unity for which Jesus prayed. We share in that victory and we're promised one day an ultimate victory that will itself be so glorious, so redemptive, So all consuming that it will make right all that has been wronged. And behold, says the Lamb in Revelation, I am making all things new. As you and I prepare our hearts for Easter and reflect on both the love of Christ and his prayers for a unified church, I pray that we would pursue unity by practicing humility and truth telling. That is where we will return to Philippians in the new year after Easter, so to speak. An extended meditation. On the humility of Jesus. Let's pray. This comes from Paul speaking in Ephesians 3 about the unity and tearing down of the dividing wall of hostility. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, and I pray that according to the wealth of his glory, he will grant you to be strengthened with the power through his Spirit in the inner person, that Christ will dwell in your hearts through faith so that because you have been rooted and grounded in love, you will be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and thus to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that we will be filled up to the fullness of God. And now to him who by the power that is working within us is able to do far beyond all that we ask or think, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen.